great seeing you this morning. Um, if you would go ahead and take your Bibles, and we're going to be uh, mainly in the book of Galatians this morning, uh, Galatians chapter 1. All right, if, uh, if you notice, each of the songs this morning had a couple of key phrases. So one, they're all about the gospel. Two, they all had the word grace in them somewhere, like amazing grace. And those are, those are terms that we're really familiar with, right? The gospel, grace. But something that I found is sometimes the things that we think we understand the most we really understand the least. The things that we assume we know, we really don't know that much about. I know as, as I've grown and matured and as I've studied God's word, I thought, you know, I have this idea of salvation down. I, I got saved when I was, you know, 12 or 13, and I've got it down. And as I've studied God's word, I've realized that there's so much about salvation. There's so much about the gospel that I just haven't understood for a long time. There's so much about grace that I just, I, I thought I knew what grace was. And as I've studied God's word, he's just shown me that there's so much more to it than I previously thought. When I, I told the story in the earlier service, but when I was in college, uh, I took a, I, there was like several preaching classes that you take. Well, and one of the classes, or you have to uh, get up and preach in front of the whole class. And then they all, everybody else in the class judges you based on how well you did. And the teacher judges you and tells you how well, or usually how poorly you did. So it was my turn to preach. So uh, I'm, I, I got ready, I prepared, I studied, and I decided that I'm going to preach on Noah. And there's a, there's a phrase in Genesis that says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So I had three points. They're probably alliterated, but I'm not sure. I don't remember. But it was, this is how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And, you know, I was preaching away. It had to be in 10 minutes, which I didn't really have a problem with. Uh, so it, has, it had to be within 10 minutes. So I, for 10 minutes, I'm preaching. This is how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So I, I sit down and I'm like, okay, that wasn't too bad, but you know, you, you can be proud of yourself. Hold your head up high. That wasn't so bad. And then the teacher gets up. And in front of all the other students, he says, you know what? The word grace means God's unmerited favor. The word unmerited means that there is nothing you can do to earn it. And you preached on how Noah earned God's grace for 10 minutes. But the problem is, is that God's grace cannot be earned. And that was like, as I think back on that moment, that was such an important thing for me to hear. And I think that's such an important thing for us to hear this morning, to just be reminded that God's love and God's grace cannot be earned. They're unconditional. They're freely given and freely offered to us. As we look at the book of Galatians, this, uh, it was written by the Apostle Paul to the churches of Galatia, which Paul started. And he built them on the firm foundation of the gospel. I guess we could say, you know, technically God built them. But Paul started the churches on the firm foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
He established them on the firm foundation of grace. However, there were some teachings that began creeping into the church that Paul is addressing here. So let's go ahead and begin our study of this book, this chapter of Galatians chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you, and peace from God the Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. Let's pray, and we'll ask the Lord to bless the message today. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We thank you this morning for grace, for your unmerited favor that you've, that you've blessed us with. I pray that you'd help us this morning as we study your word, as we examine our own hearts, that you'd help us to see the truth of what your word says. I pray that you'd uh, help us confront this morning lies that maybe we've been told or maybe that we've told ourselves. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Right off the bat, as Paul writes this letter, he's reminding the churches of Galatia about what the gospel is. Let's look at verse number three. Um, he opens with grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to first take a look at this word grace that we've sung about that no doubt you've heard in church your whole life that you've been in church. You've heard this word grace. Now I've heard the acrostic like grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. To me, it's a little bit easier to understand God's unmerited favor. It's God's love. It's God's acceptance that we cannot earn, but that he still freely bestows upon us. Something interesting also that I found in studying this, that Paul opens with grace and peace. These are both benefits of being a child of God, benefits of the gospel. But also grace was a common Gentile greeting. And the word peace or shalom was a common Hebrew greeting. So right off the bat, Paul's already establishing, hey, I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to a multi-ethnic church with diverse backgrounds, with diverse upbringings, and with a, a very diverse um, religious background. So he's saying, I know some of you are Gentiles, and I know some of you are Jews, and both of you are going to hear, both groups are going to hear what I'm going to say uh, with your own lens, and I'm talking to both groups in the church. And really, that's how church should be. Church should be full of different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds. Um, church should be people of all different, all different lives that come together, and the common thing that binds us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul's already establishing right off the bat, I know who I'm talking to. And he reminds them about the firm foundation that their churches were built upon. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Now this morning, I want to go ahead and lay out the roadmap that we're going to follow for, for the rest of the message here. Where first, we're going to look at the true gospel. Then we're going to look at the false gospel. There's a lot of false gospels, but we're going to look at one in particular, the true gospel, the false gospel, and then we're going to look at the fruit or the results of 
the true gospel. So that's the, that's the map that we're following this morning. Now, as we do that, I want to take us all on a journey uh, through the Bible because the whole Bible all points to the gospel. The Old and the New Testament both point to the gospel. And there's a well-known preacher that says we should, uh, Christians should unhinge themselves from the, go- from the Old Testament. Sorry, not from the gospel. He says we should unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. That the Old Testament doesn't apply to us. But if you look at the Bible, it all points to the gospel. And you cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And you can't understand what was happening in the Old Testament without the lens of the New Testament. Because it all points and it all tells one story of Jesus, how he uh, came to earth and died for our sins and rose again the third day to, to save us from ourselves and to save us from our sins. The whole Bible points to that one story. But I want to show really from Genesis uh, to Revelation how it all points to the gospel. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of warning. You're going to have to put on your thinking caps. I'm going to challenge your thinking this morning in different ways, but we're about to go from Genesis to the New Testament, to Galatians, uh, in, in a matter of just a few minutes. When I got to this point of the message in the early service, there was a couple of people that were falling asleep. So I, I need you to like stay with me, stay engaged. If you give me $20 after the service, I'll tell you who was sleeping. Um, so, but uh, until then, until then, we'll just uh, let their secret identities remain a secret. All right, so back to the gospel. We're gonna start at the very beginning. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I find it really interesting that from the very uh, first moments of scripture, the Bible doesn't seek to, um, to defend the existence of God. It just assumes the existence of God because it's written on all of our hearts that there is a God. So in those six days of creation, he created what we commonly refer to as everything, the universe, the air that we breathe. He made all of it, including two people named Adam and Eve. Now, God had certain expectations that he had for Adam and Eve to tend the garden, the Garden of Eden that he placed them in, and to not eat of a specific tree. Don't eat the fruit of a specific tree. And guess what? Those simple expectations, God gave them the gift of innocence, a perfect environment, and man still fell short. So God, in my mind, I would expect him, if I'm reading that for the first time, I would expect him to just wipe them out and start over. But for some reason, probably because he loved them a little too much uh, to do that, he made a way for them to be restored back to him. He covered their shame by sacrificing an animal. Um, That word covering, we also use the word atonement for. He atoned their sins by the sacrifice of a lamb. He restored them back to him through a sacrifice. But because they ruined their perfect environment, they lost their innocence. Now they know what is good and what is evil. God gave them new expectations. You're not innocent anymore. Now you know what's good and what's evil. So now my expectation is for you to live according to your conscience. You know what's good and evil, so choose good. You know what's good and evil, so don't choose to do evil. And how did that work out? Well, Adam and Eve had, you know, a child named Cain and another child named Abel, and Cain kills Abel. 
And fast forward a few generations, and that brings us to Noah's Ark, that same Noah that found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? Um, but the world became so wicked by people living according to what they thought in their own eyes was right and wrong that God sent the flood. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel that uh, God sealed Noah and his family inside the ark. They, they couldn't seal themselves inside the ark. God had to seal them inside the ark and saved them from the wrath that he poured, about, that he poured out on the rest of the world. So God had expectations for Adam and Eve. They fell short. God had expectations for the next generation, the next few generations, to live according to your conscience, and they fell short. Once, uh, once Noah left the ark with his family, God gave them a new set of expectations. He gave them the concept of civil government that if someone takes a life, then other people have the, the authority to take their life from them. But he also gave them another expectation to disperse throughout the, the, the world and repopulate it, to refill it. So what did they do? After a couple of generations, there was a guy, I'm pretty sure his name was Nimrod, who decided that everybody was going to work together and stay in one place and build what we refer to as the Tower of Babel. So God looked upon that. He said, I want you to disperse throughout all the earth and, and replenish it. And they fell short of God's expectations. So he confused their languages and everybody that was, the, everybody grouped up into the language that they spoke and did what he wanted them to do, to spread out through all the earth. So once again, we see God having expectations and man falling short. Then there was a guy named Abraham that came on the scene and God gave him a new set of expectations. I want you to, I'm gonna give you a promise. I'm gonna promise you a land. I want you to go to that land that I'm going to show you. I'm gonna promise you a seed. You don't have any kids yet, but your children will be greater than the number of the stars. That they'll be more than the, the number of the sand of the sea. They, they'll be innumerable. And I'm gonna give you a blessing. And through that blessing, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. So Abraham followed God to the promised land. And he had some children, one of them being Isaac. And Isaac had a child named Jacob. And then Jacob had several children, one of them being Joseph, who found himself in Egypt. And then the family that God promised a land to finds themselves not in the promised land, but they find themselves in Egypt. And because of that, they ended up being slaves for 400 years in the land of Egypt. Once again, we see God having expectations for a man and man falling short. Then this family, they, they grow in number and really become more like a nation than a family. And God delivers them from the bondage of the Egyptians. And when they escape that bondage, they get to the other side of the Red Sea. And God gives them a pretty amazing gift if you think about it. He gives them, do you know what it is? He gives them the law. Now, we kind of, want, especially through our, our Christian eyes, we view the law as a bad thing, right? Because God, you know, set us free from the law. We'll get to that in a little bit. But they viewed the law as a good thing. David said, oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all, the, all my day. So the reason why it's a good thing is because civil law wasn't really a thing yet in the world. But God gave them the specific set of laws, 613 rules that they were supposed to follow. 
and by following these rules, their country would be elevated above all of the other ones. But we kind of know through the rest of the Old Testament how that went, right? So we, we made it through Genesis to Exodus. Now in Exodus, God gives uh, a list of expectations. Leviticus, he recounts those same expectations. 613 laws. And the rest of the Old Testament is just a series of ups and downs for the nation of Israel. When they followed God's law, things were great. When they didn't follow God's law, things weren't so great. Judges came, judges went. Leaders came, leaders went. Kings came, kings went. Nations came and conquered them, and nations went. We get to the New Testament, and we find the nation of Israel in bondage to the Roman Empire, right? That's where, that's where the New Testament begins, and that's where the world in which Jesus entered. He entered the world where man over and over again fell short of God's expectations. But that's why God sent Jesus. Because while we fell short, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And it's not by our righteousness that we find favor and love and acceptance from God. It's through the person of Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved, was buried, and rose again three days so that we could find acceptance by God. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's acceptance. Jesus said when he was on earth in his Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Because all the while, the purpose of the law wasn't to make anybody righteous in the eyes of God. The purpose of the law was to show us that we could not keep the law, that we could not be righteous in God's eyes. So we needed someone else's righteousness to be put onto our account. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the Old Testament is to point us to Jesus. Now there were a group of people that grew up in Israel that lived their whole lives under the law. They lived their whole lives under these 613 rules and expectations. And they had a really hard time with this idea that Jesus came not to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And they entered this, these churches in Galatia. And Paul is addressing this because these Jewish Christians, these Christians who previously followed the rules of Judaism, were still trying to connect these certain laws to the gospel. They were saying, yes, we're a church of Jews and Gentiles, but you Gentiles, you don't know what it's been like all these years. We've had to follow all these rules, and now if you're going to find favor in God's eyes, now that you're one of us, now that you've believed the gospel, if you're going to find love, if you're going to find acceptance in God's eyes, then you need to be circumcised. Then you need to follow our dietary rules and our dietary laws. You're going to have to follow these 613 rules because you're saved now, you're a Christian now, and we have to follow God's law to be loved and accepted by God. So Paul is writing this letter to the churches of Galatia to confront this false gospel. But the first thing he does to expose the lies, he shows them what is the true gospel. 
Let's look at verse number three and four. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He reminds them of the truth of the gospel, that there is nothing we can do to earn favor with God. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's love. He's already given it to us freely and unconditionally. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 5.8, but God commendeth or proved or demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's another verse that says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. So the ultimate expression of God's love that he offers freely to us was for him to give his life for us. That's the ultimate expression of love, that you don't get any more loving than that. That's like 100% love. I don't know how else to, exp how else to express this, but like you have a, a thermometer and it's full. It doesn't get any more filled than that of love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate expression of love God gave to us when clearly we had not earned it. When clearly we had not done anything to deserve his love. But these churches of Galatia were suffering from the delusion that they now had to earn God's love. Now that they've believed the gospel, they had to follow this list of rules to truly be accepted by God. Let's look at verse number uh, six. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The gospel plus anything is nothing. The gospel plus anything is a false gospel. And the gospel plus nothing is everything. I'm going to say that again so that it can sink in a little bit. The gospel plus anything, good works, a list of rules, good behavior, the gospel plus anything is nothing. The gospel plus nothing is everything. And that's the message that Paul is preaching to the churches of Galatia. They're, one of my favorite movies is, and I might get in trouble for saying this, but one of my favorite movies of all time is The Truman Show. Now, for those of you who have never seen The Truman Show, The Truman Show is about a man named Truman Burbank, who is the unsuspecting star of a reality TV show. He doesn't realize that the town of Sea Haven Island that he's grown up in his whole life is actually a giant set. He doesn't realize that his wife, his parents, all of his friends, his boss, his coworkers, everyone in his life are paid actors playing the part of being in his life. The whole world, unbeknownst to him, revolved around him. And throughout the whole movie, he's slowly realizing that his whole world is fake. And 
as, as I've grown up in church and I've heard um, lots of preaching in my life, when I was in college, I, I traveled around uh, like the Southeast going to different churches. Um, and I've heard a lot of preaching. I've been to a lot of youth conferences. I've been to a lot of camps. I, I've heard a lot of preaching in my life. And I, I guess I, in, in a way I've done it to myself, but I've grown up in this world thinking that I have to behave and I have to perform a certain way if I'm going to find acceptance in God's eyes. You would, you, some of you would probably be surprised, but I've heard uh, some crazy messages in my life about how you should wear a certain style of glasses because any other style is worldly, that people should dress a certain way and talk a certain way if God's going to really love you. I read just the other evening about uh, someone that preached a message about how you can add, uh, how you can gain value in God's eyes. And it was all the typical things. If you, if you serve in the church, if you dress a certain way, if you talk a certain way, if you don't drink certain things, if you uh, don't put certain things in your body, if you have your hair cut uh, just the right length, then you'll add value in God's eyes. And my friends, that is a false gospel. And uh, the, the whole point of the book of Galatians, the whole point of this message is to help us see that there is nothing we can do to earn favor, to earn grace, to earn God's love. He's already given it to us freely. Anything else is a false gospel. If you believe that dressing a certain way earns, favor, earns you favor in God's eyes, you've believed a false gospel. I love the King James Version, but if you believe that if you only use the King James Version of the Bible, God will love you more, You've believed a false gospel. If you believe that attending church three times a week will make God love you more, that will earn you favor in God's eyes, that will add value, will, you'll have more value in God's eyes than you've believed another gospel. You followed another gospel. All of these things are good things, but all of these things are not the gospel. The only thing that earns us favor in God's eyes is Jesus Christ who gave himself freely for everyone, for all of us. The ultimate expression of love has already been given to us. And that's, the, that's the, what Paul is confronting in the book of Galatians. Let's look ahead. Uh, let's continue in this chapter, and then we'll go on to the next. We'll look at some verses in the next chapter. Um, he's talking about the go this false gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that ye have received, let him be accursed. There's only one gospel, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life. He died, was buried, and rose again the third day, to save us from our sins. And by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel. But sometimes I think we forget that the gospel isn't just for lost people. The gospel is for saved people as well. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is our foundation. Without the gospel, we have nothing. 
If Jesus Christ didn't rise again the third day, then our faith is in vain. But the churches of Galatia began following another gospel. They, they were told that now that you've believed the gospel, now that you've gotten saved, it wasn't by anything that you did. You didn't do anything to earn it. It was all God's grace. It was all God's love. But now that you're saved, you have a list of rules that you need to follow. You have a list of expectations that you need to follow. And if you're really going to be loved, if you're really going to find favor in God's eyes, then you're going to have to follow this list of expectations. And that's the false gospel. That's the false gospel. It's, it's bait and switch. It's, it's all God's grace until you get saved. And now that you're saved, it's this list of rules and expectations. Let's see what Paul has to say about that in chapter number two. Verse number 16 uh, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to stop right here, and I want to kind of break down three aspects of salvation really quickly. Salvation has three parts. Justification, that he's talking about here, justified. Sanctification, and glorification. Now, justification means to be declared righteous before God. It's not our righteousness, but it's Christ's righteousness imputed to us or given to us that God sees and declares us righteous. It's not anything that we do. It's not anything that we earn. It's all Jesus. We receive it by faith, but it's God's grace. It's God's unmerited favor. That's justification. Sanctification is the process by which we are conformed into the image of his son. So every day, on this earth, we should be looking more and more like Jesus. And the last part, we'll come back to sanctification, but the last part is glorification. That's the eternal state that will be glorified with God in heaven. Our sin nature will be removed from us. Uh, we'll, we'll enjoy face-to-face -face fellowship with God for all eternity. That's glorification. And the gospel provides all of these it provides our justification, it provides our sanctification, and it provides our glorification. Now, we believe that really clearly for justification and glorification. Like, oh yeah, you can't get saved, it's only Jesus Christ. You can't get saved by, by works, by doing anything, by earning it. That's true. We believe that. Every, everybody says that. Everybody agrees on that. Everybody agrees on that with glorification. We'll, we'll never by our own good works, we'll never by following any expectations or any rules become glorified until we get to heaven. But then there's that messy middle. There's that part in the middle between justification and glorification that for some reason there's been a lot of confusion. This idea of sanctification. That every day we should be looking more and more like Jesus. That every day we should be becoming conformed to the image of his son. This was a problem in the churches of Galatia. They wanted to be sanctified. They wanted to be more and more like Jesus. So in their minds, they made up these rules that if you're going to be like Jesus, if you're going to be sanctified, if you're going to be accepted by God, then you have to follow these rules. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law. And Paul's confronting that. Let's look at how we're sanctified. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. 
even when we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the law, or sorry, it's justified by the law, I'm sorry, justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law? or by the hearing of faith? The answer is we received the Spirit by faith. We did not receive the Spirit by the works of the law. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect or sanctified? Are you now sanctified by the flesh? So here's this question that Paul's asking. You've been justified by faith. It was by God's grace. You could not do anything to earn it. But now you're trying to earn God's favor by obeying the rules of the law. How can you begin by the Spirit and now be sanctified by the law? The answer is you can't. That's the false gospel. If you believe that there's anything, and I know I've said this, but I, like, I'm saying this over and over again for a reason. If you believe that there's anything that you can do to earn more favor in God's eyes, then that is the false gospel. That is the false gospel because the gospel plus anything is nothing. And the gospel plus nothing is everything. We are justified by grace through faith. We are sanctified by grace through faith. And guess what? When Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden, they were saved by grace through faith. When Abraham died, he was saved by grace through faith. Everyone that lived under the law, that made sacrifices every year to atone for their sins, guess what? The sacrifices didn't save them. They were saved by grace through faith. If you've believed the gospel, there was nothing you could do to earn it. You were saved by grace through faith. And now, as we continue this process of sanctification, as day by day we seek to become more like Christ, it doesn't happen through the works of the flesh. It happens by grace through faith. And someday we'll be glorified. Our sin nature will be removed from us. And it won't be because of anything that we've done. It will be because of grace through faith. Now Paul, 
he addresses this question in the next chapter. Or, sorry, he, he addresses it in chapter 5, which we'll look at it in a bit. But this poses a question. If doing good works, if living a holy lifestyle doesn't earn you any points with God, then why should we do it? That's a valid question and that's a fair question. And we'll, we'll answer that question. But that's what Paul is getting at when he talks about, do I not, do I not frustrate the grace of God? And when he talks about, um, uh, let's see, uh, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, verse number 17 of chapter 2, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin, God forbid. It's not saying that we just go around and doing whatever we want to do. But at the same time, it's not that we follow this list of expectations to find favor with God. So the question that we seek to answer is, what is then the fruit of the gospel? What, is, what are the results of believing the gospel? How are we supposed to live if we're not supposed to live by a set of rules that we just make up arbitrarily? Let's look at Galatians chapter 5. Verse number one, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to, the, to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Let's look ahead to verse number 16 of Galatians chapter 5. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So what's the answer? We can't find favor in God's eyes by keeping any rules. So how are we supposed to govern our lives? Guess what? We govern our lives not by a set of rules, but by walking in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. Why should we live a holy lifestyle? Why should that be something that we want to do? Why not, hey, God's given us all the love. He's given us all of his acceptance. He's given us his unconditional grace. So why not just live however, however we want? Why does he give us commands to follow even in the New Testament? Now that you're saved, here's, here's some ways that you should live our lives. First is the law of sowing and reaping. 
if you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll of the Spirit reap life everlasting. But next, I, I want my life to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. I want my life to be marked by love, by joy, by peace, by long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those are the things I want my life to be marked by. And that cannot happen by following a set of rules. It cannot happen by striving and working and trying to achieve God's favor and God's love. It's impossible to achieve any of this on our own. It's only by walking in the Spirit. It's only by letting Christ live through us. It's only by uh, having a healthy input and a healthy output, putting God's word in our hearts and letting the Holy Spirit live through us through the truth of the word of God. We cannot earn it. We cannot achieve it. We cannot attain it. But what I've found in my own life is so many times I, I find myself reverting to this mindset like, oh, I have to live a certain way because I'm a Christian now. Because God will, and maybe I wouldn't word it this way, but it feels like maybe God will love me more if I tell the truth. Maybe God will accept me a little bit more if I uh, dress a certain way, if I act a certain way, if I listen to a certain kind of music or fill in the blank. And you know what? As Christians, we should have standards in our lives. We should have some things that we say, hey, we're just, we're not going to do that. But at the same time, we need to realize that having standards in your life doesn't make God love you anymore. Living a holy lifestyle doesn't make God love you anymore. What's our motivation? That our lives would be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. That love would be a defining factor in our lives. That that's what we'd be marked by. Another way I think of this is that uh, why, uh, some, as I'm thinking through this, why does God give us instructions and rules to follow? Why should we obey God's word? And as I think about that, I think of sim something simple like the law of gravity, right? When God created the whole world, he created the universe to operate under certain laws, certain natural laws. Guess what? If he didn't create gravity, none of us would be here. We'd all be dead. That's a law that God created for our benefit, right? Well, the, the things that we find in scripture that he instructs us, that he commands us to do, he doesn't tell us to do those things so that, he, so that we know how he can love us more. He tells us those things because he's designed the human experience. And he knows that if we follow certain rules and certain laws, like honesty, like humility, like mercy, if we follow those things, then that's, that's going to give us the best life that we could possibly live. He gave us these rules because he loves us, not so that we can follow him for him to love us. And that's a big difference. When you experience the love of God, when you live from God's love instead of for God's love, that's when we experience the liberty that he has for us. That's when we experience the grace that he freely gives to us. And I found myself 
uh, as a Christian thinking that I have to do all these things to please God with my life, to make God love me a little bit more. But then I've studied the scripture for myself and I've read what God has to say about it for myself. And I've realized that his love is already unconditional and his love is already freely given to me. And I don't have to do anything to earn God's love because he already loved me so much that he gave his own life to save me. So my goal this morning is to maybe help you escape some of that erroneous thinking, some of that uh, harmful thinking that you have to behave and perform a certain way so that God will love you anymore. I, I hope that you'll, you'll break free from the chains of bondage and that you'll live in, in light of the liberty that Christ has given us. At the end of the Truman Show, uh, Truman makes his way to the edge of the giant set and he ha is given the choice you can go back to everything that you've ever known you can go back to your same job you can continue being the star of this reality show or you can leave the set and live in reality and Truman was given that choice whether he was going to go back to, what he's, to everything that he's ever known, or whether he was going to leave it all to pursue truth. And we have the same choice today. Perhaps this, this message in the truth from God's word has confronted some thinking in your own life. Well, you have the choice today to make. Are you going to leave everything you've ever known for what's actually true? Are you gonna go back to living in bondage of trying to earn God's favor on your own? The gospel isn't just for the lost. The gospel's for the saved too. The gospel doesn't just give you freedom from the penalty of sin. The gospel has the power to give you freedom from the power of sin in your life. We don't follow God so that he'll love us we follow him because he loves us. And there's a big difference.